Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. One of my favorite things about our podcast listener community is that we are a people who love to read and who crave learning and growing as we engage with the written word. So, we invited author and professor Jessica Hooten Wilson to our podcast to talk about the joy of reading as a spiritual practice. Jessica's recent book, Reading for the Love of God, outlines ways that Christian thinkers across the ages have developed their faith through the act of reading, and then instructs us in some practices that can help all of us to read generously and with an openness to spiritual formation. In our conversation, Jessica and I also spend some time talking about what life is like as a woman in the academy, and I include an outtake at the end of our conversation where Jessica shares how her family manages dual careers and three, soon to be four, young children. I think you'll really love this conversation. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Jessica Hooten Wilson is the inaugural visiting scholar of liberal arts at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. She previously taught at the University of Dallas. She is the author of the Scandal of Holiness, Giving the Devil His Due, Demonic Authority in the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor and Fyodor Dostoevsky, which was the winner of a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award, and two books on Walker Percy. Dr. Wilson speaks around the world on topics as varied as Russian novelists, Catholic thinkers, and Christian ways of reading. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, Reading for the Love of God. But first, I would love to hear about your life as a professor. Our listeners are mostly women who are connected with academic life in one way or another. And so I'm interested in centering our conversation there. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your path into academia and maybe what are some of the gifts that you have uncovered in, in the mm. academy and some of the challenges? Sure. So I love telling my story, especially to other academics. And I was at a lunch at Biola University only a few weeks ago, and it was for women in theology. Mm. And Natalie Carnes and Jennifer Powell McNutt were both the presenters, and those are good friends of mine. And so I had driven over from Pepperdine to get to hear them. And what astounded me is after they gave these presentations about their life in the academy, everyone in the room said, I'm just mystified by the fact of you two, that you have these theology degrees and you have tenure track jobs and you're tenured professors, because it seems like such an anomaly right now, mm. the whole room was essentially jobless mm. and they had PhDs in theology and they were wondering, what do I do with this? Right. 
And so I love telling my story because I did not ever set out for a tenure track job. That's the route that has ended up coming to me. And I've had a few tenure track jobs and I've been blessed in that way, but I've also been okay with whatever God was going to do. Because for me, when I started taking classes first at university of Dallas, and then later at Baylor, I just wanted to know more. And that was the driving passion. I kind of just thought God will do whatever he does with it. If I end up working in a classical school, that'd be wonderful. Private Christian school. If I end up staying home with my kids and I'm writing books on all the stuff that I've learned, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And just waiting to see the way the Lord would take it. So for example, in 2020, when the university I was at decided to up their faculty efficiency ratio, which is like code language for, we're going to increase the number of classes you have and lower your salary. Uh, I decided to withdraw without fear in a way that I think if we in the academy are so closed off into the tenure track job is the only use for our PhD, it's too scary. And I was able to just kind of let that go. And the last few years have been a really fun ride of even universities being innovative, you know, University of Dallas giving me a different kind of position than they normally do. Um, University of St. Thomas in Houston starting their MFA program, which was like, all online creative writing graduate classes that I've gotten to be a part of. And even this job at Pepperdine where they're essentially let me be a scholar for the last year and visit campus and teach across their whole campus. I taught religion classes and great books classes and literature classes, just getting to illustrate what, what kind of dialogue I could bring to the classroom and um, how I could teach literature in a theology class and really just getting to work with the professors and work with the faculty there in a different way. So I'm always excited to share those kinds of things with people because I think too much we we think in a in a box mm-hmm. <laughs> and kind of have limits on what the life of a PhD can look like. And I've I've been excited that it doesn't have to stay in that box. For you personally, have there been any particular challenges that you've run into? Yes, a lot of them I didn't want to give name to for a long time because I didn't want to fall into a trap of seeing myself as marginalized or sidelined because Mm -hmm. I just, I wanted to assume that whatever jobs I'm going to be given, I'm going to be given and God's going to open whatever doors I'm supposed to have. And instead it's more and more the last several years, kind of awakening to some of the ways I was treated that I shouldn't have been treated. Mm -hmm. And that has been helpful because it means that I get to look back and help graduate students and undergrads, especially females forge a different way Hmm. and be prepared for challenges that I was unwilling to name when they were happening. You know, things like you go to a conference, you're hanging out with a bunch of people and then they decide to take it to the next place and they push you literally like physically (laughs) out as they shut the door and say, sorry, this is all guys tonight. Um, moments like that, you know, that I've had to deal with or, or meetings being called with my whole department, except for me, because it was all the guys and <laughs> not me. Wow. So, you know, stuff like that, that you just try to ignore for a really long time. And then once you see it, you're like, okay, I can make this better for somebody else. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, once I name the problem, I can make sure that my students are prepared for it and that they can handle it with grace and charity in a way that um, I was handling it with bravery, but not with open, clear vision. Yeah. So, so do you, I mean, this is such an interesting, it's such an interesting, interesting example that you give and what, I mean, what advice would you have for a young, new, um, faculty person who finds themselves in a situation like that? 
I, I would say first assume the best because mm-hmm. I, I, this may sound, I don't know how it's going to sound to other people. I assume that people are not maliciously misogynist. Okay. <laughs> I just assume when they say things like you would have been a great preacher's wife, they're not demeaning my theology PhD. They are trying to compliment me. I assume mm-hmm. the best. And I think that that's a healthier way of going about it first. Then if you can work into a conversation the way you would in a Socratic dialogue, why do you say that? You know, what makes you think of a preacher's wife as such a noble position? What are you assuming about what God's doing and how he uses talents and how he has his Holy Spirit gifted to us? And and start almost having conversations from a point of humility and charity, because I think it'll go a lot farther. And your end goal is, again, to help that person along, but also to make sure that 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 man or woman also helps the next generation and the next generation. And if instead you go into those conversations or you assume the worst or you feel victimized or you constantly harp on the problem, not only are you missing the opportunities that are there in front of you because you're you're like holding onto this grudge, um, but also I don't think you're you're giving a gift to the other people that could benefit them um, if you instead are more of a teacher and less of a um, I don't know what the word is, less of a belligerent mm-hmm. in that sense. And and instead a place of teaching goes a lot farther, I think. Yeah. That's a very gracious way to see that whole situation. And I love hearing, that's a wonderful story. It's great to hear your own <laughs> personal experience and um, it's very practical for, for our <laughs> listeners. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, um, I really want to get into your book. I loved reading it. Um, just again, it's it's entitled Reading for the Love of God. And I would like to start by asking about spiritual formation. You write in this book um, really that we can be formed spiritually through the practice of reading. And I know this is true in my own life. So this is a pretty general question, but I'd like to start by asking how would you begin to describe the ways reading has shaped your own spiritual life? Like what, mm. what, what books have shaped you and how does your faith influence your experience of reading? Yeah. If I, I mean, I can go all the way back to when I was a kid and of course the Bible is the starting point for more, most Christians. And so I remember reading things like the book of judges and just mm-hmm. being overwhelmed by the narrative and overwhelmed at God's role in the narrative and God's role in the story and wondering, you know, what was I going to be called to and how, how was God going to work through me and, and getting excited that that was coming to me through these pages, these old stories. And so I took that way of reading for granted. And I just read everything along the same lines. I'd read TH White's the once and future King and think, how can I be called? Like, what kind of hero can I be? Or I'd read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, like, how is I, as a, as a kid, have a different perspective than adults and what can I bring to the table and what can I do with it? So I was just always reading that way. I think you have to be taught out of reading that way. Yeah. I think a lot of the ways that we, you know, when Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot know the father. I think a lot of it has to do with, we are already created in such a way that we're looking for him and desiring God and finding God in, in the pages of great stories and the stories that our parents are telling us, we're always attuned to the world. And then it gets taught out of us through school and through different ways of education 
that destroy that love of reading. So that by the time students come into my classroom at 18 years old, they say things like, I hate English, whatever that means. Like if you actually take that (laughs) sentence, I think it's the most (laughs) nonsensical sentence you can say. Um, But students would come in and they would say things like that to me. And I'm like, "What what do you mean? Do you hate stories? Do you hate, like I would, you know, I'll sing songs. Do you hate that song? You don't, you don't actually hate words and stories. These are things you love. You think you hate a class or a content of a certain class because of the way it was taught to you. But when they become adults, they're going to go back to this desire to like, I get off work. What do I want to do? I want to read. Why do I read? Right. I'm not going to take a quiz on it. I'm not going to have to answer certain questions about it. Then what is it good for? And it's almost like we have to return to that way of seeing that the classroom takes away yeah. um, and get back to that. So for, for me, I've given you some examples from, from childhood, but as an adult, it was Augustine's confessions and Flannery O'Connor and the, you know, the divine comedy, it was um, Ernest Gaines, a gathering for old men. It was, you know, it was some of these amazing books that just impress upon your soul, a different way of seeing the world and a different way of being in that world. Mm-hmm. And, and just a longing to be able to share that and enjoy that with other people. Yeah. That completely, I mean, that aligns so much with um, my own experience um, where I love reading. And I feel like there are so many books that are like old friends to me mm-hmm. that have impacted my life that I've, you know, been able to um, connect with the author in yeah. a way that they would never know, but that where they've really shaped my life. Yeah. Right. I mean, as a little kid, I just remember having like crushes on people in literature <laughs> or, you know, I want that mom to be my mom. Mm-hmm. I want that person to be my best friend. And and they do, they come to life and then that, that slowly dies away and you start dissecting it. Like it's a object under a microscope, but instead you, you lose that friendship with the book, that friendship with the text that we once had. Yeah. Well, and this, so this really connects with the next question I wanted to ask you, which is about um, a chapter where you contrast usefulness with Mm. enjoyment. And it's a complicated relationship. You spend some time untangling the two ideas and encouraging readers to find joy in reading and that that kind of leads us to a life that is more full of love for God Mm, and our neighbors. mm -hmm. And so I guess I would love for you to kind of tease that out a little bit more, the distinction between usefulness and joy. Yeah. So the way Augustine does, he divides it into three categories. So it's not just a dichotomy, though he mostly dwells on the dichotomy, the rest of De Doctrina. But at first he outlines it and he says, okay, there are things that are just to be used. And if we think about it in terms of books, you use a, a manual to fix a car, right? Or you use a telephone book to say, I don't know that anyone still does that to right, right. look up phone numbers. <laughs> but there are certain things like certain ways of reading, you're only using them. You don't need them for anything else other than like uh, point A to point B, mm-hmm. right? And then there are things to be used and enjoyed. And what Augustine means by this is that they point you towards the third category, which is enjoyment. And the only thing that belongs in that category is God. Mm -hmm. God is the only thing you can't use for something else. And therefore God is to be enjoyed in and of itself, right? God is useless to you or should be useless to you. Instead, God is our highest end and our highest good. So that middle category is where I would put art, literature, music, things, people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
things that we enjoy because we enjoy God. So we use them for the enjoyment of God. But to say we use people starts getting people scared or that we use books at all starts getting people scared. And so that's why Augustine makes that category of use and enjoy. Um, people are not ends in themselves, but they are used and enjoyed for the love of God because mm-hmm. God created them. So the love of neighbor and love of God is is so closely intertwined as it is throughout the Gospels. This argument is then saying, okay, then that person's book, that person's art becomes another vehicle by which you know the enjoyment of God. So that really makes sense. And I think that our readers would absolutely agree. But I have this question. I want to pause here just for a minute because we hear from women who Mm -hmm. find that they read so much for their jobs. Maybe it's even that that useful reading that doesn't have a lot of enjoyment in it. That mm-hmm. so they read so much for their jobs that the idea of reading for pleasure doesn't really land very well, even if mm-hmm. it is um something that they wish they could be able to do, they would be able to do. So um, what advice do you have for those whose reading capacity feels maxed out, but they wish right. for that kind of, you know, reading enjoyment and connection? Yeah, I would say to take on different kinds of reading. So there's always been seasons for me when I was dissertating, you know, in grad school, I spent most of the day reading Girard, reading philosophy, literary criticism, uh, David Bentley Hart, like things that were just really esoteric. And each sentence demanded so much attention and demanded so much thought. And so when I would be done with that, what was I going to read at the end of the day? Well, so I chose to read Middlemarch, Moby Dick, <laughs> Tale of Despero, like kids' books. I remember I would just choose anything that was so disconnected from my work hmm. that I could enjoy the sentences and not analyze them, that they could reach my imagination, but I did not have to intellectually engage it. Now, there are people who study Middlemarch. I'm not one of them. So I was I was free, in a sense, to enjoy the story because I didn't have to then go and analyze it. Right. And that's what I mean by something disconnected from what you're currently working on. Mm-hmm. I think this is another reason children's literature is great because those are good books. It's like C.S. Lewis says, if it's not a good book for kids, then it's not a good book for adults. Mm-hmm. But if it is a good book for kids, something like Chronicles of Narnia, it's not wasting your time, but it's also not shutting off your brain. And yet it's not going to demand the same energy or attention that maybe your your books on business, your books on science, your books on theology are demanding of you. Um, so that's one thing is to choose choose reading that's outside of what you're currently being asked to intellectually engage. I would say secondly is try different methods. And by this, I mean either reading with your kids, which is a different method of reading. So reading aloud yourself or listening. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I point out in my book is how for centuries, reading was allowed. <laughs> and we've lost that gift to read aloud. We always think of reading as the solo activity or by ourselves. So for example, last night, um, we had a lot going on in our family. Yesterday was really hard. Lots of doctor's appointments, blah, blah, blah. I was mentally done, but I always read before going to bed. And so I turned on an audible book and my husband and I listened to an audible book before going to sleep. And so it's a book, it's being read aloud, we're reading it in community, but I didn't have to sit there and look at the words when I was not in a place to sit and look at words at that moment. So I think those are two different ways that you can kind of approach making sure we we continue a life of reading that is beyond just our scholastic or scholarly activities. Let me ask you, I just want to press in on one more more kind of element of this that I've been thinking about. So 
I've had the experience of embarking on reading a piece of great literature. I'll tell you, it was great expectations. Okay. <laughs> and I was very enthusiastic about it. I was feeling really excited um, about loving it. I wanted to learn from Dickens. I'd heard Eugene Peterson going on about how much oh, yeah. he loved Dickens. <laughs> but then I really felt myself getting bogged down in mm. the unfamiliar language and context. And then it kind of, that process then ended up making me feel a little insecure and kind mm-hmm. of ashamed. And I felt like I should love this book. Why am I not as into it as I feel that I should be? So my guess is that there was some kind of um, context that I was missing, that there was some kind of handles or guideposts that I needed. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what kinds of stepping stones or tools can you suggest for people who want to read a book that is not their usual easiest read, maybe something that's more along great literature lines um, and, you know, where they can hope to enjoy it. What, what tools would you offer for them? Okay. So first I really love BBC productions. You have the benefit of all the great British literature, mostly being turned into radio drama, (laughs) which makes it easier to enjoy. And if so much of the experience is about the story, then I don't think we need to be such snobs about just reading the literature word for word. Enjoy the story. That's what it was there for. And I think BBC dramas do a great job of this. So there's a lot like Shakespeare's done as BBC drama, Dorothy L. Sayers novels, Charles Dickens. We always have those in the car for us. Um, So I I would start there. People and people are going to be snobby about it, especially in the Academy, but you don't have to be. That would be one way to kind of introduce. Two, I would not force yourself necessarily to get through every book that you start. Hmm. And I I say that with a caveat, Augustine said to the sick man, even the sweetest bread tastes bitter. The caveat is, is that some literature does take a while to acquire the taste. But just like with our children, where we're saying like, take a bite of this, take a bite of this, take a bite of this. And we make them try something every single time. They don't have to always finish every plate they start. We hope that in time they develop a taste for something that's really good and they will get to a point where their palate appreciates it. It might take something like the BBC drama to get you to love the story that the next time you go to read Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, you know how to read it and you love it and you enjoy it in a different way. But I would say don't force yourself so that you end up gagging on something you're supposed to love because you're not at a place yet to love it. Right. And so I think we have to give ourselves a little freedom there um, that there might be another great book to start with. Right. And start and and, and give yourself that freedom is a really good, good place to be Um, resource wise. I do believe in like intellectual engagement is secondary to imaginative engagement. So Mm -hmm. you begin by reading the story because so many of us have been mistrained with our introduction to literature. We might have to start with the teaching guides before we get into the imaginative engagement, because we have to almost overcome some of that mistraining. So for example, I have a handful of lectures online that was pure providence because of the quarantine in 2020. I had to put a bunch of my classes online. So I had to record things like, here are my lectures for Brothers Karamazov, for Homer, for Aeneid, all of these different great books. And I had to start putting them online. I found that they were really helpful for people who had always wanted to read 
the brothers Karamazov and never gotten around to it, or they'd always wanted to read four quartets, but they were so confused. And I think there's so many resources out there that we can start with an introduction to these works. And sometimes that gives us a way out of the mistraining so that we can read the book with a more open heart and an open mind. So those would be my three. Um, do find a way to engage the story first, whether that's like graphic novel version, BBC drama version. Um, second, give yourself the freedom to not stick with the book the first time through. If you don't like it, try kind of try around great literature. And then third, if you do need an introduction or a teaching guide, that's great. <laughs> Start there and maybe it'll help you with the appreciation of the text. That is great. Those are super helpful. Do you have, are those um, those lectures that you gave, are they available uh -huh. publicly online? Yes. Yeah. So there's, a, I had, <laughs> it was so funny because during quarantine, I started with just my class doing the YouTube channel. I'd never even done a YouTube channel. I was such a dinosaur. Like I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and so someone helped me create the YouTube to put the lectures on during 2020 March. And then students were like, could you open it up? My mom wants to watch this. You know, oh, it's yeah. just, it's quarantine. I'm, she's going to read with me because she has nothing to do. And suddenly more and more people were reading it. And by that summer, people were like, hey, I'm going to start a book club because it's we're still kind of quarantined. And my friends and I are going to read Brothers Kermatsov. Can we watch those videos? And so it just kind of became a, a thing. So I, it is a, like a whole channel of stuff now. So. Super. Well, I'll I'll find yeah. that. It's on YouTube and I'll I'll link that in our show notes so oh, that okay. you can, can get to them. That's great. Yeah. In one of your chapters, you contrast spiritual reading with vicious reading, which I thought was really interesting. I was guess I was wondering if you could offer some suggestions or, or even cautions about these different mm. ways of reading, especially for people in academia. Yeah. So I think I first came across this over a dozen years ago, reading George Steiner, mm. and it was the critic versus the reader. And that was the first time I had that dichotomy placed in front of me that there was a way of being in graduate school specifically that I was thinking of at that time. There was a way of being in graduate school that would lead me to not love the thing I was studying if I wasn't careful. And that's what I mean by vicious reading, reading that takes the book and tries to make it what the reader wants yeah. it to be. And I think sometimes book reviewers do this. I think academics do this a lot. Um, we just, we stand over the text like it's a specimen and we forget why we loved it. And we forget why we were reading it to begin with. We're not being formed by it at all. We're just taking it apart. <laughs> and I think that, that that stance in reading has become way too common. I do call it vicious for lack of a better way of phrasing it. But it's it's what produces things like the anxiety of influence. It's what produces misconceptions that uh, the reader has to have a strong reading of the text to make it one's own rather than let the book strongly read the person. And I believe the second kind of reading is more Christian hmm. because it it is I'm going to be a selfless encounterer with this other uh, text with the self that is coming through the text. I'm going to listen to what the author has to say and what the words in front of me say. There's more of a place of receptivity that I think C.S. Lewis and Augustine are advocating for. And, and that to me opens up our world rather than closing us down mm -hmm. and uh, to a place where we would, we would miss what the text has to offer. It seems like that, that spiritual reading style 
engages the author in conversation in a way, and you don't have to agree with everything. You can continue to have dialogue, but it is different from vicious reading seems more like sticking your fingers in your ears and Mm. just talking over him, you know, or her. Yeah. Well, it has to do with what we started the conversation. You know, when I'm in conversation with people who disagree with me in a way that uh, usually turns into ad hominem or, or they're lowering my perspective because mm-hmm. they have some demeaning view of me and they're therefore missing what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. And I think we do this with text. Lewis says, if you walk into a conversation with a person that you assume is evil and ignorant, you might find they only have evil and ignorant things to say. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you walk into a conversation with a person expecting that they might say something worth listening to, you could be disappointed, right? Mm-hmm. He says that you you might have given them a compliment they don't deserve. But on the other hand, you also might have your, your mind open in a way you didn't expect. Another question I wanted to ask, particularly thinking about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. I'm wondering what ideas and tools can teachers and professors take mm-hmm. from this book as they seek to inspire their own students to love reading? I would hope that this book becomes required by faculty everywhere. (laughs) And that is mostly where I've seen the problem has Mm -hmm. been the ways in which we are teaching literature. Yeah. And the ways we're teaching almost any kind of reading in our courses. And even whether you're, you know, whether you're teaching a business class what do you assume about the reading experience that maybe is influencing how you're teaching? And I think that those questions, a lot of faculty have forgotten to ask and too often they get into the, the system of things. Mm -hmm. I have to have a quiz. There has to be accountability. I have to give a grade. And that system is not why they started teaching. That system doesn't even have anything to do with the telos they're hoping for when it comes to their students. So I'm kind of hoping the book breaks us out of that system Mm -hmm. to see what is it that that I think education actually should look like. Because from my perspective, education is about passing on the best that has been thought and said across culture and time so that the next group of people might love and glorify God. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, (laughs) then we might teach differently, which means we're reading differently and this book is hopefully showing you how to do that. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a really bold claim for this book, <laughs> but, but that is what I would love to see happen from the book. You have so many examples of um, a different perspective to take on reading. And um, even, you know, this contrast between usefulness and enjoyment, you have that wonderful chapter about Dorothy, Dorothy Sayers and how she's trying to, I can't remember the word you use, but it's um when she she wants people to kind of deconstruct or, or look at mm. the the life defamiliarize of, yeah. yes defamiliarize thank you you know i think there's so many examples like that in the book that can kind of help help professors look at reading and at their their work that they're engaging the students in from mm-hmm. a different angle from taking it from a different perspective mm-hmm. yeah well and i had a friend recently who was telling me about the chat gpt problem that she's had in her classes and you know, she was asking how to deal with it. And my, my first thought was like, well, have a conversation, right? Yeah. Ask like, 
why? Like, why is this appealing to students? Why, mm-hmm. especially for her literature majors, why did they do this? Like, why right. would they want chat GPT to write their papers? Mm-hmm. What's being lost? What's being gained? I mean, the conversation I feel like could go a lot farther. And and that's where I think I have less cynicism towards students, because when you engage them in conversation, it's, they don't even really want to cheat. They just got so caught up in the system where your class for them became about checking a box and getting a grade chat GPT makes total sense in that system. Yeah. But if your class is about loving the book that then it has no place there. Mm -hmm. And so we have to help our students navigate that so that they don't even desire chat GPT because it's not doing what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's, it's all about desires and how we transform their hearts and how we transform their imagination when it comes to what reading is or what literature could be. Yeah. I I mean, I appreciate the way you seem to have a real respect for students. And I think that comes through, comes through in your writing and in this conversation. And it's one of the best qualities for a teacher. <laughs> <right>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I love, I love people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, uh, whether I'm teaching an eight-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 70-year-old, you know, we're, we're all people in this journey. And I've been a student who's benefited so much from my teachers. I just want to do the same thing. Yeah, that's great. Well, we are, we're, we're wrapping up our time. So I want to ask you uh, before we end, how can readers follow you and your work and what is on the horizon for you? Oh, thank you. Uh, well, you know, I sent out a publication like announcement today because my book just came out today on March 28th. I'm, I don't know when this is going to release, but that's mm-hmm. what I did today. And I just found myself asking for prayer because I can definitely get so excited about the work that I'm doing. I want it to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it doesn't matter how much I put out there. <laughs> so um, that would be number one. It's just, mm. you know, we do this prayer at our church every week in which the um, the elder says, you know, for those who are putting things out into the world, for those who are speakers, for those who are writers, Lord, may their work bear fruit. Mm. And so I just, I would start with that prayer. I would say second action. Um, I would, I would love to get to share this book with people. I really, I believe so much in what it could do. And so if it's about engaging in dialogue after the book, like I'm happy if people can reach me through my website or follow me on Twitter or, um, ask me to zoom into their classroom or to their, you know, I can fly into their professional development sessions. And I love doing PD with teachers and professors, So I I would say those are all like kind of action oriented ways that I can Mm -hmm. help the book really uh, work for people. And then I would say for what I'm working on right now, I'm really excited about it, but it's going to take longer. I'm working on a book on women Mm. and I am imitating a 14th century (laughs) book about women. Wow. Uh, The book of the city of ladies by Christine de Pizan. And I'm basically trying to talk about about women in education, women in the church and women in leadership, but in a way that is dialogic and narratival. So that sounds fascinating. Oh, it's going to be so good. I'm really enjoying the research for it because in the old, like in the 14th century version, there's these like allegorical women that come down and talk to the author. Mm -hmm. And instead I'm having Dorothy L. Sayers, Edith Stein and Anna Julia Cooper 
have conversations about these things oh, with wow. me. So yeah, so it's a lot of research and it's a lot of fun and but it's it's gonna take some some time because I really want to capture their voices and yeah. be able to engage their thought well. So I found a lot of inspiration in Jessica's enthusiasm and love for people and students and reading. And I might even revisit my Great Expectations reading project sometime soon. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I encourage you to check out Jessica's books and YouTube channel. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Jessica shares how her family manages dual careers and three, soon to be four, young children. The Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Jessica. It's a big question and it's really hard to answer. And I I would say there's been goods and bads and there's been um, things that have worked really well and things that haven't. And it's a constant learning experience. As I tell people all the time, I don't have any model for this. Yeah. Most of my... I think all of my graduate professors were male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, maybe Louise Cowan, who by the time I met her was 92 and, uh, <laughs> you know, it just didn't have that. She just didn't have that same struggle and didn't experience that struggle the way that, that I did. And it is a struggle. And I have done some things that have worked well for um, my scholarly life. My Fridays became non-negotiable. I dedicated that time to just reading no matter what the university was asking of me, which meant my Saturdays and Sundays were also non-negotiable because whatever my family needed from me was theirs. Mm -hmm. There was no phone. There was no email. There was no social media. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There was my family and that's it. And so compartmentalizing in that way was helpful as I tried to manage it, trying to give, you know, only these certain hours to certain things at a certain time Mm -hmm. was really helpful. I haven't had a a ton of help. We don't have family nearby or anything like that. And and so that's been more difficult. I think it's been Mm -hmm. more challenging. I'm about to have my fourth child Mm -hmm. and she is a surprise because my my youngest (laughs) is in kindergarten and my oldest is in fifth grade. And so in our head, we were moving on with past that reality of having littles and we had made it somehow, Mm -hmm. even though it was so hard to struggle with two careers and having kids. Uh, So we have actually made the decision to go back to just one of us working, meaning me Mm. for the next several years. So I think there's also been a seasonal move where we've each practiced for a season whose job was going to be the job versus whose domestic life was, that was going to be their job. Because too often when we've done both, it ended up being, okay, you have a full-time job and then you have another half job where we're splitting domestic responsibilities. 
and you end up at a 1.5 workload yeah, <laughs> way too often. And we've done that for years. And so I think that there's just been seasons of, okay, he's going to work and I'm going to work less, or I'm going to work more and he's going to work less, or we're both going to try to split it and see how it works for a few years. And now next year it's going to be, okay, this is yours and this is mine. Mm-hmm. We're going to try that again and split it up and probably switch again at another point in our marriage. So I think we have to be open to the seasons, but I'm also coming from a perspective of roles for each sex that aren't determined by your biology. Yeah. And uh, not every Christian has that same mentality. So for me, it's, it's been helpful that I have a husband who also has that mentality. Mm -hmm. And so we've been able to kind of go back and forth and not just assume the domestic world was mine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so that's allowed me to, to do what I'm doing. So 